Friends, would you open with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, I'm going to read the first 14 verses of this important chapter, beginning in verse 1. Hear now God's word. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not associate with them, for at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord." Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake! O sleeper, and to rise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I hardly know where to begin to pray. When I look out over a group of friends, each of us are in our own battle and story and history with sexual immorality and impurity. Dear friends that I've prayed with and cried with and labored with, I've confessed my sin to and they've confessed their sin to me. Would you hold us, Lord Jesus? Would you comfort us? Would you challenge us? Would your spirit do what no sermon or 20 minutes of talking can do? And that is to woo us to yourself, to change us into the image of your Son for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, this morning we encouraged our little ones to leave for this time all the way up through elementary school. And the reason we're doing that is because, as you've seen in our passage, these are blunt words about sex and hell. These are very heavy topics, and we want you as parents to be able to drive those conversations with your kids. We realize we're kind of setting you up when you leave today and your kids jump in the car and say, why wasn't I there for the sermon like I usually am? You can say what is appropriate to their age and stage as simply as, you know, today we talked about what it means to love God more than absolutely anything else in our life. And if we're a mom and dad and husband and wife, we learned how to do that as husband and wife. But I hope very soon you're going to find and you're going to ask others how to find age-appropriate ways to begin to disciple your kids with respect to these two things. We've got three sins listed here twice. They come to us in two verses. They're here in verse 3 and then the exact same list of three appears again in verse 5. And here's what they are. 
Number one is sexual immorality. The Greek word there is porneia, and it refers to adultery. The second word there is impurity, and that's a much broader word. It can be defined as anything that is filthy or dirty. Now, I think that's important because if we're only talking in terms of acting out on adultery, we're going to miss a world of sexual sin and lust that visits us every single day. Shows and movies and social media and video games and second looks at the workplace or on the sidewalk or in our gym or relationships at work or crude conversations with friends. Anything at all that entices us to want or desire or imagine anything outside of our union with Christ first and foremost, and then our union with our spouse, falls under the catch-all category of impurity. It might not be full-blown sexual immorality, but it is most certainly impurity. And then number three, you have the word covetousness, which is curious why that would be listed with the other two. When I think of coveting, I most often think about wanting somebody else's material goods, something that somebody else has that I don't have. But remember the 10th commandment. Remember how it was delivered to us on Mount Sinai that we shouldn't just covet our neighbor's wallet, but also not covet our neighbor's wife. Which makes lusting and coveting very similar. Both are desiring without taking. Both want something, but they don't physically in the outside world act upon it. Which makes both of them so insidious, so easy to justify, and so easy for us to hide in the dark. We live in a world that has forgotten how to blush over sexual sin. It is ludicrous in our culture today, in the 21st century, to stand up here and open a 2,000-year-old book and instruct us about how to have sexual purity in our life today. I can't think of anything more countercultural. And it should absolutely surprise us when we return to the Word just how Deadly serious it takes what our culture treats as so flippantly today. It should wake us up. Its whole point in the spirit is to wake us up. Look at verse 3. Look at God's standard. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. And then Paul follows up with, don't even participate in any foolish talk about it. He says, don't even joke about something like this. Don't associate with people who are indulging in it and tempting you to do the same thing. Don't have any part in it. Don't even be unduly curious in those who practice these things. Don't do it. Don't talk about it. Don't think about it in a way that tempts us into these sins. God's standard of righteousness is not the world's standard 
of righteousness. Those two have nothing to do with each other. They couldn't be farther apart. And it is always surprising to us, always countercultural to us, when we return to the word and see what God has to say. You and I can't help ourselves. We live in a sex-saturated culture. We can't help but see what the world is doing. And as Christians, we take three giant steps back, and then we pat ourselves on the back because we will always be more righteous, more sexually pure than our friends and our neighbors and our co-workers. And then the Word of God comes in the power of the Spirit and rips the roof right off of our lazy lustful, self-righteous complacency, and it shines a spotlight on every one of our hearts. This is excruciating. It is excruciating to wrestle with what the Word really says about sexual sin. And I pray today, if we are squirming in our seats, it will be the Spirit-filled squirming that brings us to the conviction, and not Satan's squirming which is meant to shame us and to drive us further in the darkness. God's righteousness is not the world's righteousness. God's righteousness is not the world's righteousness. Do you think God's going to commend us because we've put covenant eyes on our computer, but then we watch trashy films and shows, we read dirty novels? Do you think he's going to be pleased with us because we're not right now taking in new images because we already have enough images in our minds and hearts to use and abuse for a lifetime? Do you think he's going to commend us because we don't act out on sleeping around but we've made an idol out of being married if we're not married or wishing we had another spouse if we are married? He will not. He does not. He hates our sexual sin. He wants no part of it. I'm sure that everyone noticed what Paul writes in verses 5 and 6. He says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ And God, he says, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience. Christian, may God banish every empty and deceitful word from the service this morning. We are not playing games. We don't have that luxury. This is eternally and deadly serious. Every single person in this room, I believe, at least everybody that I've met and interacted with and we've had any kind of depth of conversation, struggles in some way with sexual immorality or impurity. I I just haven't met a person who doesn't. And for each of us, it's a widely different story. We've come from a different background. We've had different experiences. Our story with impurity is very, very different one to another. 
There are people who have confessed that they struggle with or act out on same-sex attraction or heterosexual lust. There are some of us who this has been a fantasy in our mind alone. Some of us have acted out on this fantasy with another person. For some of us, this has been intensely physical. For others, this has been intensely emotional. Every single person that I have met or interacted with or spended any meaningful time with has at least dipped our toe in the broken cistern of sexual immorality. But some of us have jumped headlong into that cistern and drink its salty, dirty water today. Paul is stressing to us that there are two kinds of people in our midst who call themselves Christians today. And we must listen very carefully to discern where we stand with respect to these two categories. Number one, if you fall into or you dive into sexual immorality or impurity as a born-again believer, the call stands for you to run to Jesus today, to receive his forgiveness, which is wild and free, to be washed clean of your sin, to have God say, I move it as far as the east is from the west. When I see you, I see the perfect spotless righteousness of my son. I don't even see your sin. And then keep fruit in keeping with repentance. Confess it to another believer. Confess it to someone who God will use as a means of grace to help bring lasting and sustainable change in your life. You will walk in the light. In that category of believer who's on the verge of confession, I also include the believer who is now struggling with their sexuality. Maybe you're young and you're going through adolescence. Maybe you've just moved out of the house and you have new freedoms. Maybe you're entering a new stage and you're feeling impulses and urges and you're not sure what to do with them. And the plea to you as a believer is run to tell someone. Do this in community. Discover what God is saying to you in your specific realm and let him guide you and lead you in the light. If this is you and you do this and you repent of this, then you are the saint described in chapter 4 verse 30. Your sexual sin has grieved the Holy Spirit. It's made him sad because he wants more for you. But you are sealed for the day of redemption. You are eternally secure and forgiven in Christ. Praise God, by his grace, you will inherit the kingdom of God. What a gift. But there is a second category within the church of those who describe themselves as Christians that say that they are converted and they've fallen into or they've dived into impurity or immorality and... We found a home there. It it feels good to us. And it feels right right to us. And um, it doesn't feel like we're at least intentionally trying to hurt any other person. And it feels like we've kind of found a balance between being a part of a, a community of believers. But then also, in the other hand, holding on to our sexual sin. In another hand, and it's working for us right now. And Ephesians 5 visits us this morning and says in the spirit, you are in danger of forfeiting the kingdom of heaven. 
We want Jesus as our Savior to forgive our sins and to get us out of hell, but we don't want him as our Lord or King or Master to lead us in any meaningful way. And the whole book of Ephesians says to us, you cannot have one without the other. He is offered to us in the whole, or he, the person of Jesus, is not offered to us at all. This didn't come up with any other sin in the book of Ephesians. Did you notice that? I'm sure it's true of any other sin, any sin that we hold closer to our hearts than Jesus and we say, no, you shall not have realm in this area of my life. That's true of any other sin in our life. But but Paul just went through a list of anger and slander and stealing and lying and he didn't say anything in chapter 4 about forfeiting the kingdom. But when Paul thinks about the city of Ephesus, which was a sex-saturated city, and he feels the implications of that for the church, he begs them, Church, I beg you, turn from your sexual sin and run to Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 becomes a supporting chapter of Ephesians chapter 5. Corinth and Ephesus, they weren't far from each other. Paul planted the one and then the other. When Paul was at the other, he wrote back to the one. There's similarities between the two churches. Paul finds out that after he planted that church in Corinth and went on to Ephesus, that there was actually a man in the church who was practicing brazenly Sexual immorality, he was committing adultery, and when the church confronted him on that, he said, no, I'm not changing, I'm not giving this up. And the church asks Paul, what should we do? So Paul writes to the church, he's not there, but he says in 1 Corinthians 5, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, like we are today in this place, with the power of our Lord Jesus... You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. If he won't repent and embrace Jesus as his Lord and Savior, do not lead this man on in false security. Don't keep him on your member rolls. Don't serve him the Lord's Supper. Don't invite him to your small group and pat him on the back and say, oh, I mess up too, that's fine, you can keep doing what you're doing. Do not give this man false security. He is in danger of forfeiting the kingdom of God. Remove him from your midst. Place him back in the world, which is effectively in Satan's hands, so that this man will come face to face with the horror of darkness. He will see it. He will run from it. He will return to Jesus, and he will find forgiveness, and he will be saved. Church, we're not playing games. Bring this man before the church, and excommunicate him from your midst. That's the call that falls on us today as a church body. I'm telling you this from 1 Corinthians 5, and from Ephesians 5, and from the elders of this church. If you are found in sexual immorality or impurity, you're caught in that sin, And you will not repent of that sin and you will not bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You refuse to show any sign of that. Then the elders will come to you, one and then two and then all together. Because we love you. 
because we care for your soul. And this church will excommunicate you. We're going to remove you from our membership. You're not going to take the Lord's Supper here. At least not while we're serving it. And you will find yourself back in the world. Back in the hands of the evil one. Face to face with your sin. So that you will very soon see that horror and run and return to Jesus. And when that moment happens, that could be 2 a.m. on a Tuesday. We're going to receive you. We're going to embrace you. We're probably going to throw a worship service at 2 a.m. and serve the Lord's Supper, and you're going to be first in line. And the son and daughter who was lost has come home, and we will celebrate in that day. That's going to be a glorious day. There are living stories right now in our church of sexual sin. They're happening right now. There's different places that we are in each of these. There's sexual immorality. There's physical and emotional adultery. There are those who are exploring and acting out on homosexuality. There's habitual pornography and masturbation. That's happening right here, right now within our membership. And some of you this morning have either confessed those things or you've actually been caught in those things. You and I have actually had a conversation about those things and you've talked to your life group leader about it. And maybe you feel like this sermon is written for you and about you because you don't know how rampant sexual sin is within our church body. The reason these are not 1 Corinthians 5 stories, the reason by God's grace we have not in our very short life of a church publicly excommunicated a single member is because friends have repented of their sin They want to throw it off from them. They want to run and return to Jesus and find his forgiveness. I've never seen a story of repentance that's not also marked by falling and stumbling and returning back to the sin. But by God's grace, he will carry us and he will lead us to repentance. And that is happening today in our church body. And the reason these people have done this, the reason that actually happens today in our church body is because the steadfast love of the Lord, it never ceases. His mercies, they never come to an end. They are new every single morning. His faithfulness is beyond what you can imagine. I see God break cycles, generational cycles of sin every single day. He does miracles every single day. He takes a faltering Christian on the precipice of hell itself and he grabs them with the help of the body and he drags them back to the light and they find forgiveness and they find power to change and to break cycles in their family and their life. Great is his faithfulness. Could there be any sweeter news to those of us who are in the stranglehold right now of sexual sin? God stands ready to forgive. He is light. Verse 9 says that his light is 
good, it's right, and it's true, and it's where we want to be. O sleeper, you who have fallen asleep in sexual sin, you have been lulled to sleep by empty and deceitful words in the world and in the church, you who who are hiding things in darkness and would prefer to keep it that way, wake up. Wake up. For the love of God, for the sake of your soul, and for your family, and for your church family, wake up. Awake O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it's amazing to me that when the devil gets a hold of a passage like this, he comforts those who need warning, and he warns those who need comfort. There are those of us who this verse is going to send in a tailspin because we've always doubted our salvation and now we doubt it even more and your spirit needs to come and comfort us in the way of truth and light. And then there are people in our midst who struggle with sexual sin who will not repent of it but they keep it and they coddle it and these words come as comfort because they think they have access to both forgiveness without the lordship of Jesus Christ Banish those empty and deceitful words and let that saint run to repentance. Give the session courage. Give us a countercultural, apocalyptic courage to weigh the sins of the body, to point our body to the loving, merciful forgiveness of Jesus. And to bring those who refuse to repent before the body to remove them from our membership. Do all this for the sake of drawing us to yourself and deeper in love with you. We ask in Jesus name. Amen.